We're going to look at six men in the book of Acts. This morning, you'll need to have the Gospel of Matthew, the Gospel of Mark, and the book of Acts uh, handy and available to you as we look at these world changers. I, I remember uh, meeting some folks from our PR team when we uh, were starting Facing the Giants and the promotion of Facing the Giants. And when they asked what is the... Uh, What's the goal? What's the purpose of uh, Sherwood Baptist Church? And they were told reaching the world from Albany, Georgia, they laughed, <laughs> literally laughed. And you know, the problem is it would be easy for us to think we can't be world changers. We can't make a difference. We can't do great things for God. But God is looking for people to be world changers. He's looking for people that, are, that never get over the fact that Jesus saved them. Some he calls to vocational ministry, but all he calls to follow him and to obey him. Amen. And when you think about changing the world from Albany, Georgia, when we are the, now the fourth poorest city in the nation, Forbes says we are the fifth most depressed city in America, and we are number 10 in identity theft, it would be real easy for us to suck our thumbs and get under the covers and pretend that we can't do anything and we can't make a difference. I believe we are here to make a difference. I believe God has strategically placed us in this community and in this region to make a difference. We cannot make a difference by doing business as usual. We have to get out of the box in our thinking. And, and when I think about world changers, I, I think about these six men. Now, and I think about it. Here's what God's allowed us to do, and this is just some of it. He, he's allowed us, he, God has given us. We didn't buy it. It was given to us, a 60,000 square foot Coca-Cola plant. I have a ladies Bible study there. We do all changes, uh, oil checks and car checks for senior adults and single moms. Uh, we do uh, Samaritan's Purse operates out of there with Operation Christmas Child. There's probably some more that we'll be doing with Samaritan's Purse out of there. There's a Bible study out of there. We feed the homeless every week, have done that for years upon years on Thursdays. I mean, you, you think about what we do. Think about Legacy Park. First time I saw Legacy Park, it was grass knee deep in an old pecan grove, and I had to visualize something that is beyond my ability to visualize, but now when I drive out there and I see that 110-foot-tall cross on that property and thousands of people on it during weeks of practice and during games, I, I think, boy, we're reaching our community. By the way, you begin reaching the world by reaching your community, and that begins when we walk out this door. And, and then SCA, I mean, God gave us probably $2 million worth of property at SCA for $400,000 when we acquired that Riverview property years ago. We're sending a missionary to an unengaged people group in January, and we're going to reach a people group that, as far as it can be tell, told, there is no sustainable witness among that people group. We've established a relationship with pastors in Cuba. We have a missionary with the IMB who's out of this church that's in Brazil. We've been in 15 to 20 countries in the last 20 years. We have mission teams that go to our church plants in Baltimore and in Cleveland and in San Francisco. 
And all of that is to say you reach the world when you decide that God has called you to fulfill the Great Commission. When God has called you not to sit soaking sour, but to be a church that sits and soaks and then goes out and serves. When I read the book of Acts, I read really the Acts of the Holy Spirit, but these are the Acts of the Apostles is what we commonly call it. There's a person in the book of Acts that kind of jumps out at you. He's the obvious leader in the Gospels. He's the indisputable leader in the first 12 chapters of the book of Acts, and that is Simon Peter, a fearful man emboldened. One of the things about Jesus, when he chooses people that he wants to use, he doesn't take the safe bet. Now, think about Simon Peter. He was probably the first redneck. You know, probably had a gun rack in the back of his boat. And, uh, I mean, he's probably the first redneck. You know, he was always sticking his foot in his mouth. But before we criticize him too much, we need to remember that God ended up using a guy that most of us would have never chosen. I mean, if you're looking for somebody to lead a charge for Jesus, Peter would have not been the one I would have chosen. He had his faults, he had his flaws, he had a short fuse, he had a loud mouth. (laughs) Sounds like me. Uh, God doesn't use perfect people. God uses people who are available to him. And God uses people who are willing to be changed and challenged. Here's a man who got out of the box. Now, I just did a thing at the Cove on on uh, ministry outside the box and I can tell you there are no statues built to conformist there are no monuments built to people that go along with the crowd there are some 16 to 18 thousand southern baptist churches maybe today most of them are going to do the same thing they did last week and next week they're going to do the same thing they did this week and they're going to go by the same routine and the same ritual they're going to start at 11 o'clock sharp and end at 12 o'clock dull because there's no life Nine thousand of them will not baptize anybody this year not because there are no lost people in their community but because they don't care if their community goes to hell There are no statues built to that. The only thing that's built to that kind of church is a for sale sign because ultimately it goes out of business. Ultimately, it loses its passion. Jesus surrounded himself with people who would never fit in a corporate structure. He surrounded himself with people that didn't like meetings, but they were on the field. They were on fire. They were on the front lines. And when you read the book of Acts, you see this story of how the Holy Spirit came upon the church. But I want to back up into the book of Matthew, the gospel of Matthew, the failure of courage. And I want us to see one of the failure points in Peter's life. It's a reminder to me, and I pray it is a reminder to you, that failure does not have to be fatal or final that God uses failures. In fact, sometimes we have to fail so that we'll quit strutting in our own self-sufficiency. Now here is Peter. It's a study of contrast, by the way, the study of the life of Peter. 
And, and I want you to look at, first of all, the fear of sinking. The fear of sinking. Matthew 14, verse 28. Peter said to him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. And he said, come. And Peter got out of the boat and walking on the water and came toward Jesus. Verse 30. But seeing the wind, by the way, you can't see the wind. You can see the effects of the wind. You can see the leaves blowing. You can see the rain moving through the wind. You can't see the wind, but, but fear caught this man who took a step of courage and he failed. But seeing the wind, he became frightened and began to, beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Good thing to pray when you're in trouble. And immediately, Jesus stretched out his hand and took hold of him and said to him, You of little faith, why do you doubt? Now, what keeps us from being world changers? I, I would submit that one of the great things that keeps us from being world changers is the word fear. Fear. The fear of man is a snare. We're afraid of stepping out of the boat. We're afraid of taking a step of faith. We're afraid of taking the next move in our development. And fear is a crippling mindset. It will cripple us personally in our life, our family, our business, in our ministry. In fact, probably more books are written on the subject of fear and anxiety than any other subject known to man. It's amazing how it cripples us. And now you need to remember, not all fear is bad. You need to fear God. Amen. And one of the things that happens in a, uh, a Christianity that is more influenced by the culture than the Christianity influences the culture is we begin to fear that people won't like us. Guess what? They don't like you anyway. There's always somebody's not going to like you. If, you. if you want to do nothing and be nothing, then, you know, just go lay down in the cemetery. But if you're going to take a stand, people are not going to like you, and you can't worry about that. Amen. You can't get uptight about that because somebody is not going to like you. By the way, I want you to just think for a moment. The very fact that you are breathing is offensive to somebody. Now, do you want to stop breathing or do you want to keep breathing? Uh, do you want to stop breathing or do you want to keep breathing? Okay, since you're breathing, you've overcome the fear of the fact that they think that you're wrong for breathing. Now, you've made a positive step this morning. Congratulate yourself. Go get a tic-tac after the service is over. Not all fear is bad. The fear that tells us to look both ways before we cross the street. That's okay. But there is a wrong kind of fear that can fill our hearts and fill our heads to where we can't be full of the Spirit of God. We can have fears and phobias. We've talked about those in other series. But look at what Jesus said. It's me. Don't be afraid. Can I tell you, whatever situation and circumstance God puts you in, you need to stop and take a breath long enough to hear him say, it's me. Don't be afraid. 
God is not surprised. He is not shocked. He is not caught off guard by whatever comes in your path. It's him. Don't be afraid. Don't be one of little faith. Immediately, Peter said, Lord, if it's you, help me to get out of the boat. Well, he is the one that got out of the boat. Jesus said to him, come. And he got out. Now, I know some of you are fishermen. And, uh, in fact, a, a pastor friend of mine posted a picture on Twitter this week of a fish he caught. I asked him if it was his brother. Uh, but, uh, I mean, it's just huge fish. I know some of you are fishermen, and I know one thing fishermen do. They are an incredibly gifted liars. <laughs> they lie about how many they caught. They lie about why they didn't catch any. They lie about the size of what they caught. But God has called us to go to waters where the fish bite. Amen. And in a community where 88% of this community, this region, are lost and unchurched, there are plenty of ponds for us to fish from. And we need to be fishermen. We need to listen to God and go where the fish are. The days are past when the church could say the fish should come to us. We need to go where the fish are. And, and, and if you're not careful, you'll listen to the devil and you'll say, you know, I'm going to step out and I'm going to do that. And you'll listen to the devil and he'll say, you can't do that. You shouldn't do that. You won't do that. They might slam the door in your face. They might not like you. They might not receive you. They might talk about you. They might not be your friends anymore. They may defriend you on Facebook. The failure of courage. Then there's the fear of suffering. Matthew 16. Matthew 16. Jesus is in Caesarea Philippi, and it's an area where there are many idols to false gods. The gate of hell is in Caesarea Philippi. You've seen a picture of that before. I've shown you a picture of that before, where the gate of hell, where the, the pagan worshipers would come and offer their children and throw their children into the water as a sacrifice to the gods. And surrounded by all these pagan gods, so-called gods, Jesus said, who do men say that I am? And the disciples began to give him all kind of answers. And, and Peter said, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. And I mean, you know, it's one of those moments where you're going to go, and I've, I've, I've stood on that spot numerous times, and you, and you just you, you see all these fake gods and remains of false worship around there. And, and you want to say in the midst of that, with all that false worship going on around them at that moment, you want to just say, man, way to go, Peter. And so when he said that, verse 21 of Matthew 16, from that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised up on the third day. And Peter took him aside. Can you imagine that? <laughs> You're the Christ, the son of the living God. Hey, Jesus, come over here. We need to talk for a minute. You're out of your mind. How quick a transition the fear of suffering. He pulls him aside and began to rebuke him. Hey, Jesus, I know you're the son of God. In fact, I was the one that figured that out for all these other loonies. I got it. I got it. So you can trust me. I need to rebuke you. Now, who do you rebuke me? I rebuke you in the name of Jesus? No, I rebuke you in the name of Simon Peter. God. So he began to rebuke him saying, God forbid it, Lord. This shall never happen to you. 
But he, Jesus, turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. You are not setting your mind on God's interests, but man's. Can I tell you something? One of the reasons we won't be world changers is we're afraid it's going to cost us something. Jesus began to talk about suffering and dying and giving his life. And Peter began to think, hmm, everybody kind of knows who we are. That means if they take the leader out, they're going to take us out. And he begins to think about the suffering that he must be. He must suffer and die and be killed. And Peter's thinking, you know, I was really thinking about that extended fishing trip in Panama City that I was planning in a few weeks. And I really don't want to go suffer and die. I mean, the only problem I want is to figure out the price of gas to get my boat down there. And so he rebukes Jesus. Let's be honest. One of the reasons that we don't follow Jesus and take up our cross daily and die daily is because we don't want to suffer because we have bought the lie that following Jesus solves all your problems and, in fact, keeps you from any problems. And you'll never change the world. You'll get a crowd, but you'll never change the world caving in out of fear of suffering. While I'm preaching this message this morning, dozens of believers around the world will be dragged out of their homes and into the street and killed for proclaiming what we say we believe. The fear of suffering. Then there's the fear of scorning, Mark 14. Mark chapter 14. The fear of scorning. Not just the fear of sinking, the fear of suffering, but there was a failure of courage with the fear of scorning. Mark chapter 14 and verse 66. Mark 14 and verse 66. Now Jesus has been arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane. He's been dragged off. He's standing outside of Caiaphas' house. You can see that in Jerusalem. They've excavated the ruins of Caiaphas' house. And even see the pit that he was thrown into. It's all there still today. The courtyard where Peter denied Jesus is still there today. As Peter was below in the courtyard, verse 66, one of the servant girls of the high priest came and seeing Peter warned himself, warming himself, she looked at him and said, you are also with Jesus the Nazarene. But he denied it, saying, I neither know nor understand what you're talking about. And he went out into the porch, and the servant girl saw him and began once more to say to the bystanders, This is one of them. But again he denied it. And after a little while, the bystanders were again saying to Peter, Surely you are one of them, for you are a Galilean too. And he began to curse and swear, I do not know this man you are talking about. Immediately. A rooster crowed a second time, and Peter remembered how Jesus had made the remark to him, before a rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And he began to weep, the fear of scorning. Now, just a simple question here. Who are you afraid of? Who are you afraid of? Peter was afraid of a servant girl, probably a young teenage preteen girl that just says, I think you're one of them. 
See, this is not about the t-shirt and the jewelry. This is about being who you say you are. This girl says, you're one of them. And cursing and swearing, he said he wasn't. Now, this is the same guy that walked on water. This is the same guy that said, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. But in a pressure moment when he thinks they could drag me in there with Jesus and kill me like they're going to kill him. Remember, Jesus has said that's what's going to happen. Now he says, "Uh uh-oh, I'm in that boat. I'm in it with him. If they identify me with him, this crowd is so hot and worked up, they may drag me in there too. And he got afraid of a little girl. Not of a soldier with a sword and a spear, of a little girl. Let me ask you something. Who are you afraid of? I can tell you, some of you are afraid of members of your family. That's why they're going to hell and you never talk to them. Because you've convinced yourself, or the devil has convinced you, it'll make Thanksgiving awkward. Well, how about them going to hell? Is that going to make Thanksgiving awkward? It ought to break your heart. It'll make Christmas difficult if I share with my cousins and my nieces and my nephews and my parents. They don't like it. They, well, they know where I stand. When's the last time you said something? About the people you go to school with? Well, they, they, they know I don't do that. You see, to not speak is to deny. Can I tell you something? I have sat on an airplane before and known, known in my head and in my heart, like God was going, mm, mm, known I was supposed to talk to the person sitting by me about Christ and I've not done it. Guess what? I was afraid of what they thought. Hey, at 35,000 feet, I don't care what they think. I just want to make sure the pilot knows where we're going because I'm never going to see that person again. And so what difference does it make what they think about me? They're going to ask for another seat? (laughs) They've already asked 20 people to get off and fly a later flight because they've overbooked it. So fear of somebody you don't even know or somebody you know very well because they might scorn us. We don't need to apologize for the one that changed our lives. We need to speak up for the one that changed our lives. Then there's the fullness of courage. And we're going to go to the book of Acts now, the fullness of courage, Acts chapter 2. Fifty days after Jesus was crucified, the Jews have gathered in the corners from the corners of the earth to come and celebrate Pentecost. And Peter emerges as a man who is bold for God. Chapter 2 and verse 3, Acts 2 and verse 3. They were all filled with the Holy Spirit. They'd been praying, remember, for weeks, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, verse 14. But Peter, taking his stand with the eleven, raised his voice and declared to them, Men of Judea and all you who live in Jerusalem, let it be known this day to you and give heed to my words. He was filled with the Spirit. He was possessed by the Spirit. He was filled with the power of God. I love what Oswald Chambers says. He says, Jesus Christ deals with my right to myself. When Jesus Christ deals with me, he deals with my right 
to myself, that I don't have a right to myself anymore. I have been bought with a price. I am to glorify God in my body. I am to die to myself. There, there is no fullness of courage without a filling of the Holy Spirit. And defeats can usually be traced back to depending too much on ourselves. Acts chapter 4. Acts chapter 4. Acts 4 and verse 8. Now remember, uh, Peter and John have come by and they've raised the, the man and they've been called in by the denominational leaders and told that they're not using the right materials and not doing it the right way and not doing it according to the manual. In Acts 4.8, Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers and elder of the people. Now just stop right there and look at me. What in the world happened to a guy from Mark chapter 16, denying Jesus before a servant girl, to Acts chapter 4, rulers and elders of the people, the very people he was afraid of in Mark 16. Now he's standing in front of them. And by the way, he doesn't have any security guards. There's no army around him. It's, it's him. He and John, he says, rulers and elders of the people, if we are on trial today for the benefit done to a sick man as to how this man has been made well, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ the Nazarene, notice, here's a guy that's gotten his courage up, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead. By this name, this man stands here before you in good health. He is the stone which was rejected by you, the builder, but which has become the chief cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven by which man can be saved. And verse 13, they saw the confidence and boldness of Peter. Now, can I tell you, Peter did not go to a class on self-confidence. Peter did not go to a seminar on how to get over your greatest fears. He just got full of the Spirit. Amen. And when he got full of the Spirit, he was unafraid to stand before the very people that could have taken him out and done the same thing to him that they did to Jesus. He was a troublemaker. He was an adversary. He was a thorn in their flesh. And they could have said, now, we got the top leader. If we can get the guy that apparently has taken over, kill him, we can stop this movement. And he stood up and they saw the confidence and boldness of Peter. Then look at the facets of courage. The facets of courage. What does courage look like? Well, let's look through the book of Acts quickly and let's look at what it looks like. First of all, Acts chapter 2 and verse 13. Acts chapter 2 and verse 13 and 14, where we just were, there's the courage to stand firm. The courage to stand firm. Peter, taking his stand with the eleven, raised his voice and declared. Now, this is the same man, but he's not the same. Now he has courage to stand firm. Secondly, the courage to speak the truth. The courage to speak the truth. Acts chapter 4 and verse 19. Acts chapter 4 and verse 19. Here's a man 
who now is courageous enough to speak the truth, verse 19. But Peter and John answered and said to them, whether it is right in the sight of God to give heed to you rather than to God, you be the judge, for we cannot stop speaking about what we have seen and heard. The courage to stand firm, the courage to speak the truth, the courage to use what God has given him. The courage to use what God has given him. If you look at Acts chapter 3 and verse 6, he uses what God has given him. He says, I do not possess silver and gold, but what I do have I give to you in the name of Jesus the Nazarene walk. Now here's where some of us get tripped up. I, I don't have his personality. I don't have her skills. I don't have their looks. I don't have their talent. I don't have their ability. I don't have this. I don't have that. I can't do this. I can't do that. I'm not gifted in that area. I'm not talented in that area. And we spend our lives wasting our lives about what we don't have or what we can't do. A man looks at Peter and, you know, he just wants money. He says, I don't have any, but in the name of Jesus, rise and walk. Can I tell you whatever you can or can't do, you do have Jesus, and that's something. In fact, it's enough. Give him what you have, what's been given to you. Next, the courage to make Jesus Lord. The courage to make Jesus Lord. Now, there are three things under this. First of all, despite persecution. The courage to make Jesus Lord despite persecution. Acts chapter 5 and verse 29, we must obey God rather than men. And you know what happened. They beat them. They said, now don't go out and do that. And you know what they did? They left that beating from the rulers and the elders who thought, you know, we make them hurt enough, they'll stop. And they'll quit talking about this Jesus. And they went back, told the church what had happened, and the church prayed for more boldness. The church didn't say, let's contract the uh, city officials and see if they can make the rules a little lighter on us. Let's write our congressman and see if he'll stand up for us. Let's call the president and see if he'll speak out on this issue. They went to a prayer meeting and prayed for boldness, and guess what God gave them? More boldness. Despite persecution, despite prejudice, Acts chapter 11, Acts 11, despite prejudice, Acts 11 and verse 2, and then we'll drop down to verse 17. Despite prejudice. And when Peter came up to Jerusalem, those who were circumcised took issue with him, saying, You went to uncircumcised men and ate with them. Acts eleven seventeen. Therefore, if God gave to them the same gift as he gave to us also after believing in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in God's way? These Jewish Christians started thinking, well, you know, you're going to have to become a Jew before you can become a Christian. You, you can't just let a Gentile into the church. It would ruin it, pollute it. It would dilute it. And Peter said, Jesus did for them what he's did for us. I don't see what the problem is. By the way, that's how you get rid of prejudice. 
You realize that it costs the same thing for Jesus to die for somebody that doesn't look like you, talk like you, act like you, live like you, has different standards to you, looks different than you, skin color is different than you, language may be different than you, but the same blood was used to save both of you. When you realize that, there's no room for prejudice. You quit looking at what somebody looks like on the outside, and you start looking at the heart. And as Tom Ellis said back in May, it's real simple. They're either saved or lost. They're either saved or they're lost. Despite prejudice and then despite peril and pain. Tradition says that Peter was crucified upside down. There are a lot of people that believe that. There's no actual evidence that he was. That's just what tradition says has told us that he was crucified upside down, but we do know he died a martyr's death because Jesus told him in John 21 how he was going to die. He said, when you are old, they're going to take you out. Now, why was Peter so bold? <laughs> he had a word from God. Acts chapter 4, he wasn't old yet. He was bold because God had told him, you're, you're going to live a long life, but when you're old, they're going to take you and they're going to kill you. And so Peter preached, he kind of drops off the scene after Acts chapter 12, and we kind of lose sight of him, except for the fact that when the church was beginning to experience persecution, he wrote a letter. In fact, he wrote two letters, they're called First and Second Peter, short letters to the churches to encourage them in times of persecution. Let me just read it, it's going to come up on the screen. First Peter 1, 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you who are protected by the power of God through faith for salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials, so that the proof of your faith, being more perilous than gold which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Peter was close to dying. When he wrote those words, he was close to a martyr's death. And the church was in a state of emergency. Persecution was coming. Oppression was coming. Martyrdom was coming for many of the believers. Rome was going to try to destroy the church, this faction that they considered dangerous. By the way, we live in a nation where we are considered dangerous. That's why they want to keep us inside the church. Hitler called the pastors of Germany in in the 1930s and said to them, you can preach the gospel inside the church. You can have them on Sundays, but I will have them the rest of the time. And that's exactly what he did. And that's exactly where we're headed as a country. The marginalizing of the church to where religion is not in the public discussion. It is for that reason that 
one cry was established to proclaim a national emergency. Now, several hundred of us did this in one of the morning sessions at Refresh, but I want to read you this declaration again because I think it is a declaration that we're going to have to make if we want to be world changers. I think world changers declare an emergency and take the steps that it takes to make the changes they have to make to see God move in the way that he wants to move. So I'm going to ask you to stand, if you would, to your feet. And this is going to come up on the screen, and I'm going to ask you to read it out loud with me as a declaration. This is a declaration of national spiritual emergency. With heavy hearts, we recognize that the church in America is in a state of spiritual emergency. Like the churches warned in Revelation, we have become lukewarm and compromised, and the light of our witness has grown dim. We confess that despite access to more resources and biblical teaching than any other group of believers in history, we are not characterized by the supernatural power of the Holy Spirit. And we acknowledge our lack of widespread impact for Christ on our lost and disintegrating culture. But God is waking us from our slumber and mobilizing us to pray earnestly for revival. Together, we desire to travel the narrow road of brokenness, humility, and repentance. In desperation for God, we cry out for the extraordinary work of the Holy Spirit in our day. We believe that true revival is the only hope to reverse our spiritual recession and enable us once again to display the beauty of Jesus Christ and his gospel throughout the world. Because we believe that only Christ can save, heal, and revive, we pledge to turn in humble repentance from every sin God reveals to us, pray with urgency for spiritual recovery and awakening, and unite with other believers in spreading the hope of Christ-centered revival. Let's pray together. These altars are open. If fear has dominated your life, if failure has dominated your life, then Come and lay that before God today. Lay it at the altar. Lay it at the foot of the cross. Find the deliverance and freedom that you need today from those things that hold you back. And declare, I am a tool for God to be used in this national emergency. I want to be a world changer. I want to be a difference maker. I want to be used of God in my home, in my work, in my business in my neighborhood, in my community, in this nation, to do something significant for the cause of Christ. I don't want to settle. I don't want to just be average. I want to be used of God in mighty ways. I'm available to Him. I yield to Him. I long to be filled with His Spirit and to walk in His Spirit. If you're here today and and you are captured by fear and anxiety or failure, and you've never trusted Jesus, can I tell you there's good news? Jesus 
will make you an overcomer.